the cosmos is all that is or ever was or ever will be. Our feeblest contemplations of the cosmos stir us. There is a tingling in the spine, a catch in the voice, a faint sensation as if a distant memory of falling from a height. We know we are approaching the greatest of mysteries. So begins the best-selling book, Cosmos, by Carl Sagan. Do you know who he is? I'm sure you've heard the references, billions and billions, right? Well, there's no doubt that Sagan was amazed at the grandeur, at the mystery, the awesomeness of the universe. I mean, probably more than most people, he took, <laughs> took thought of uh, and just uh, marveled in the cosmos, in the universe, in what's out there. But what did the cosmos reveal to him? How did he respond to it? Uh, would, would he ever know the greatest of mysteries? Would he ever discover it? Uh, what did the universe cause him to do with his life? When he looked at the universe, and he, when he looked at nature, the world around, what did it cause him to pursue? This morning, I want us to look together at a psalm, which teaches us exactly what nature reveals and what we must do about it. It's Psalm 19, and as you're turning there, I want you to think about the message of this psalm. The message is that because nature reveals God, we must pursue life with Him. Because nature reveals God, we must pursue life with Him. There are three ways, I think, that this passage teaches us to pursue life with our Creator, and each one is absolutely necessary. Uh, you can't leave any of them out. And each one of them builds upon the, the, the preceding one. So, uh, I want to show you this morning that pursuing life with the Creator, pursuing life with Him, means that we must respond to Him, means that we must be transformed by Him, and it means that we must tell others about Him. So, let's read Psalm 19 together. It's on page 456 in your pew Bibles. Follow along as I read aloud. This is a psalm to the choir master, a psalm of David, and it says, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims His handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. In them he has set a tent for, us, for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber, and like a strong man runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the end of the heavens, and its circuit to the end of them, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we look at your word this morning, your inspired word, inspired by the Holy Spirit, we ask that you, by the Holy Spirit, will illuminate this, shed light on this word in our own hearts. As you speak through me, God, may we hear you. We, may we hear what you want us to know. And Lord, may you give us the power then to respond 
We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, the first thing I want us to see about the psalm is that because nature reveals God, we must respond to Him. We must respond to Him. First of all, look at how um, nature reveals God. Number one, nature reveals God through non-human language. Nature reveals God through non-human language. Uh, look with me at verse 3. This is, uh, and I'll, I'll tell you why. We're going to, we're going to look at verses 3 and 4. Because oftentimes in Hebrew poetry, um, the middle lines of a stanza or of a poem often contain a clue to what the psalmist or the writer believes is the most important thing. What he wants to put there in the center is almost like the cli- a climax of sorts. And so, so he, he will oftentimes begin... A, 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 a poem, and he'll lead up to that middle line, and he'll say the really important thing, and then he'll kind of return along similar paths back to um, uh, back to the, basically the place where he started from. That's sort of what's happening here. So look at look at verse three. The verse three says, "There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard." Well, um, nature see didn't communicate to the Israelites uh, in the Hebrew language. <laughs> That's not how it communicated. Um, when we look at, uh, when we go out into the state forest, uh, we don't hear the trees speaking to us in English. Uh, when we travel way, way down south, we head down to Latin America and, and we pass the Rio Grande, uh, the water is not communicating to us in Spanish. You know, the, the, the words that that nature is speaking are not audible in that way, right? The, the second line there says, whose voice is not heard. Uh, another translation says, their voice is not heard. Their voice is not heard. Uh, in fact, the Hebrew for heard, uh, you've probably heard this term before, Shema. Have you ever heard of the Shema? Hear, O Israel, the Lord, your God, the Lord is one. Deuteronomy chapter 6. Uh, hear. It's the, same, it's the same word here, whose voice is not heard. See, nature doesn't speak using the sounds and the symbols of language. And so we're never going to hear an audible voice from nature saying, the Lord is God. But it still speaks, right? It still speaks, and it doesn't just speak to God, just God's people, it speaks to everybody. So, so look at the second, uh, look at verse 4 and see that nature actually reveals God to the entire world. Nature reveals God to the entire world. Look what verse 4 says, the first two lines. It says, Their voice goes out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. The voice and the words (laughs) that are heard, uh, they they reveal that God is there. They, They speak something, even though we can't hear it, right? We, we don't hear an audible voice, but nonetheless, the psalmist identifies that, that it's communicating something to us, right? The, it's proclaiming, <laughs> proclaiming His handiwork. It is declaring God's glory. Nature has a unique language all of its own, doesn't it? The result is, the result is that everybody, everywhere, hears what nature is saying. They hear the voice of nature. So how do we discern it? Paul writes this in Romans uh, 1. You, can, you could jot this verse down. Romans 1, 19 and 20. He says, For what can be known about God? 
This is very significant. Paul identifies. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For His invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and His divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. So everybody, then, is without an excuse. We call this, um, we call this the doctrine of natural revelation or general revelation. Um, it's, it's God revealing Himself through the natural world. Not in a special, unique way, which we will actually look at next week as we go further into the psalm, but in the, revealing himself in the world around us. Paul went on in, in, um, in Romans verse 25 and he said this, they exchanged the truth about God for a lie. The truth about God, they exchanged it for a lie and they worshipped and served the creature or they served creation rather than the Creator. See, none of us have an excuse to ignore our Creator. Everybody, everywhere, has a responsibility to respond to what God has done and what God has revealed about Himself. See, because nature reveals God, we must respond to Him. Have you ever heard, um, have you ever heard of Francis Collins? Is that name familiar to anybody? Um, he was the director of the Human Genome Project the Human Genome Project, studying genes, mapping, the human, mapping human DNA. In fact, a few years ago, um, Obama actually appointed him uh, over like National Institutes of Health or some, something like that. Anyway, you'll have to check up on that. Um, I don't have that in my notes. But you know, he's a very prominent guy, a very sharp guy. And a, ba- a few years back, the same year that Richard Dawkins wrote and published his book called the, Do- the God Delusion, Francis Collins also published a book called The Language of God. And in that book, um, he talked about his conversion from atheism to Christianity. How he sought out answers for life. How he, in his, in his great thinking, and his great mind, he looked at the world around him, he studied the religions of the world, and he realized that the truth claims of the good news, the truth claims of Christianity were believable, were faithful, were trustworthy. And he saw no contradictions between what he saw in the world that revealed God and what is claimed here in Scripture as well. He wrote that what, one, that, he wrote that what can be observed in nature points to a divine creator. And he, for one, was compelled then to respond. How must we respond to the truth that nature reveals God? I mean, we really have no other choice then, do we, but to pursue life with the Creator, the one who brought the world into existence, the one who created it all, as we, and, and who gave it all, as the song says. We must pursue Him with everything that we are. But the, there's a problem, though. The problem is this, that... Um, and, well, let's look. Look, look with me, um, just briefly, turn to the final verse of this psalm. I know it wasn't in the reading, but I want, to, I want us to see this verse. Verse 14, he says this, Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, 
my rock and my redeemer. Be acceptable to your sight. Didn't, we saw something like that in the, in the scripture reading, Romans 12, 1 and 2. Offer your bodies as living sacrifice. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind so we can test and approve what God's will is. What is pleasing and acceptable for our lives. Problem is, is that we worship a God who always does what is good and right and perfect and we are not good and right and perfect. How must we, how can we come before our Creator? How can we be acceptable before Him? We must be transformed. We have to be transformed. And that's the second big idea, um, uh, main idea in, in this passage that we're looking at today in Psalm 19. That because nature reveals God, we must be transformed by Him. We must be transformed by Him. Look at the, look at the next two verses, um, beginning with the last line of verse 4, and then we'll look at 5 and 6. And, and notice here that God created the sun to be the preeminent feature of nature. God created the sun to be the preeminent feature of nature. The psalmist observed here, in them, he says, in them he has set a, set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber and like a strong man runs its course with joy. The psalm, or God has set a tent for the sun. He's made the, the heavens, he's made the world, the universe, that we can observe from our vantage point here on earth, not from satellites or from wherever, but from our vantage point, we look up and we see the heavens and that's the dwelling place for the sun. And it rules over everything. Right? He describes it as a bridegroom leaving his chamber. That, that, that Hebrew word is chupa. Chupa. It's, a kind of fun, it's fun to say Hebrew words sometimes. But it was the bridal chamber. It was like, it was the honeymoon suite. So you, you imagine the, the bridegroom, the groom coming out and saying... Ah, I'm married. This is wonderful. This is wonderful. And he also describes the, the, the son as a strong man, or, or the, word, the word there is oftentimes translated as like a warrior or a hero. And he says that he runs its course with joy. The strong man runs its course or his course with joy. Uh, the NIV translates, translates that a little bit differently. He says rejoicing to run its course. The emphasis is on the joy that he's having. He's, he's rejoicing to go about his business. He's rejoicing to do his work. And that's what the sun is like, the psalmist says. And, you know, these descriptions of the sun are not all that unusual like in the ancient Near East, in the culture of the time of the psalmist. They worshipped the sun. They talked about it. They gave it flowery words. But here the psalmist says that, you know, the sun isn't another deity, no, the sun is placed there by the deity. He is placed there by God. The sun is under the authority of its creator. It doesn't have its own agenda, but it does affect the world the way that God intends it to do. And that's what we see in the, in the second point here under this main idea is that God created the sun to have an effect on the entire world. God created the sun to have an, an effect on the entire world. World. Look at verse 6. Its rising is from the end of the heavens and its circuit to the end of them and there is nothing hidden from its heat. So this, this, this little verse uh, tells us what the sun does and how it affects the world. That, that it has a circuit. It starts in one place and goes to the other place. Um, you know, obviously, <laughs> we, we know now through scientific discovery that it's actually the earth 
revolving around the sun, but from our perspective, it appears that the sun is just traveling around the earth, right? So from the vantage point of the, the, vantage point of the psalmist, he saw it coming from one end and going to the other, right? And, but more important than just the astronomical accuracy, it's, it, it's the psalmist's assertion that nothing is hidden from its heat. Nothing is hidden from its heat. There's no place on the earth, the surface, that the sun doesn't shine each day. Someday, even on the, the, the lowest south pole, the, the north pole, it's, it's shining, even if it's just for, for a few hours every day. The point, that the, the point that the psalmist was trying to make is that God had put it there to affect everything. And it transforms everything it touches. Right? The sun actually is a good ex- illustration of a deeper truth that the psalmist understood and we understood from God's word as well that, that reveals the sun with an S-O-N. The transforming effect of the Son of God. The fact that we cannot come before our Creator unless we are, as the psalmist says, acceptable in your sight, O Lord my rock and my redeemer. Once again, we realize that because nature reveals God, we must be transformed by Him. That's what we saw in Romans 12, 1 and 2, that we must be transformed by the renewing of our minds, that by testing we can discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. You all know who Jonathan Edwards was, or at least you've heard his name, or... Maybe back in school you read his essay, his sermon. Most people think of, know him as the writer of the sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, and we think of hellfire and brimstone preaching. Um, that was really far from the emphasis of his life and his ministry. In fact, most people consider uh, Jonathan Edwards to be the greatest American theologian of all time. He was also, of course, the colony's greatest preacher during the the First Great Awakening. But this is interesting that as a young man, he was pretty much uninterested in God and His ways. In fact, one one Sunday when the rest of the family was at church, he was hanging out in the family library and there was just plain old book sitting on a a desk or a shelf and he decided to pick it up and browse through it. And he read this this line, and it said, To the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only wise God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Well, of course, it was, he was reading the Bible. <laughs> he picked up the Bible. And when he read that verse, the effect on him caused him to consider the vastness and the majesty of what God had created. And, and the actual king, <laughs> the creator behind it all, to the king of the ages. Immortal, invisible, the only God. Caused him to consider his own sinful life. His own path that he had before him. His own state before God. And it actually brought him to a point of repentance and belief. He looked at creation. He, he thought about the creation and he realized there's a God behind it that he had to respond to. And he was transformed in that instant from a life of self-interest into a life of service and a life of ministry that affected 
hundreds of thousands of people. In fact, his writings affected not only New England, but the other side of the Atlantic when revivals broke out in Great, Great Britain and on the colonies. He became a witness to the glory of God. That's actually the third, the third main idea. The final main idea, really, in this passage is that because nature reveals God, we must tell others about Him. Because nature reveals God, we must tell others about Him. It, it's, it feels like it goes without saying. Of course, we talk about this week after week, don't we? Because if we're going to pursue God, it's not just about responding to Him, being transformed by Him, and we're good to go, doggone it. We're heading to heaven. We pursue God by telling others about Him. Really. We really do. Look at, look at four things. Four things from verses 1 and 2. Each line has a, has a different truth, a different way that nature is revealing God once again. Number one, that nature reveals God by recounting His glory. Recounting His glory. The heavens declare the glory of God. The, the word declare is, is to recount. That's why I said re nature reveals God by recounting His glory. To recount or to um, uh, rehearse, rehearse His glory, declaring His glory, that that's actually should be somewhat familiar. We, we saw that last week, didn't we? <laughs> In Psalm 96, declare His glory among the nations, which is what Kevin <laughs> is doing this very week. So the, but the way the psalmist talks about it, is he uses a form of the word that means it's an ongoing action. It's supposed to continue on. Every day, the heavens declare His glory. They keep on declaring God's glory. His glory is His weightiness, His heaviness. The thing that makes Him valuable. You know, when they bought and sold things at that time, they would weigh them out. And the weight of it equaled its value. And so when we talk about the glory of God, we are talking about His infinite value. No scale can weigh God's glory. It is infinitely heavy, infinitely value, valuable, and He is infinitely glorious. Second thing, that nature reveals God by announcing His works. Announcing His works. And the sky above proclaims, it says, his handiwork, or, or announces or tells about. Once again, an ongoing action. He continues to announce the miraculous works of God. His handiwork. His handiwork, the NIV puts it this way, the works of his hand. The imagery there, um, which, which, the, which the Old Testament, which the Hebrew language uses, is such a visual language. I, I, I heard Dr. Uh, Khan Yang uh, the Old Testament professor down in Vancouver talking about the Hebrew language and it's just pictorial, he said. There are pictures. When, when we see some of these words, we, we, don't sh we don't necessarily think of abstract ideas. We think of pictures. We think of God <laughs> having these God-sized hands shaping, making the world. And we declare that. We announce it. We report it. Three, the third thing here is that nature reveals God 
continually. I already alluded to that just in the way some of these words are phrased in the original language. Uh, we know that it's a continual thing, but look at the imagery again in, this, in verse 2. Day to day pours out speech or gushes out. What should we be imagining there? We, we should be imagining a, a fountain or a spring and it's just bubbling forward and it just continually flows out. Um, you could imagine a river flowing, I suppose. You could imagine a, 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 a falls, and it's just continually pouring out speech. It's continually revealing God. And then the next line, and night to night reveals knowledge, shows us that nature reveals God in unique ways. Unique ways. What is revealed by nature about God really can't be known by any other way. Yes, we can read his special revelation. We read it here and it helps us to comprehend what we see out there. But we, what, we hear, what we see here is that what night to night, what creation, what nature is revealing is making known a knowledge about God that we're not going to get any other way. We're not going to get it by introspection. We're not going to get it by look within yourself and find the truth. Believe in yourself and you'll be able to accomplish all kinds of wonderful things. That's not how we're going to find God. What nature reveals about God is unique. It is as unique as the story of God. You know, the story written and recorded in God's Word. But because nature reveals God here, we must tell others about Him. If the rocks would cry out. <laughs> we must as well. Verse 14. Once again, I'll have you turn to there. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable. Let the words of my mouth. The psalmist begins Psalm 19 talking about the speech of nature, talking about the words that are being revealed in nature. And he ends by saying, let my words be acceptable to you, God. Let what I say be acceptable to you, God. On Christmas Eve, 1968, the most television, the most watched, excuse me, television broadcast of all time was taking place. Anybody remember that? Anyone watch that? I wasn't there in 1968. The crew of Apollo 8 was completing one of its 10 lunar orbits before it got ready to return safely back to the Earth. And the astronauts on that flight were Bill Anders, uh, Jim Lovell. Some of you will know his name if you remember the Apollo 13 movie. And Tom Hanks played that, his character. Jim Lovell was on that that flight, Apollo 8, and Frank Borman. And they had a special message for the viewers as they came around. And think about this. At that time, Christmas Eve in 1968, it was the most watched television broadcast of all time. And this is what they said. You can imagine the crackling voice. You can hear this recording if you look online. We are now approaching lunar sunrise. And for all the people back on Earth, the crew of Apollo 8, has a message that we would like to send to you. And they begin reading the first ten verses of the book of Genesis. 
In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And they went on from there, right? Frank Borman, the commander, he closed it out by saying, And from the crew of Apollo 8, we close with good night, good luck, a Merry Christmas, and God bless you all, all of you on the good earth. Well, pretty amazing moment, I think. Yet within, within a few months, prominent atheist Madeleine Murray O'Hare sued the government for violating, allegedly, the First Amendment of no establishment of religion. The astronauts of Apollo 8, these three men, were fully convinced that because nature revealed God, they must tell the world about him. <laughs> they read from Genesis 1. We are seeing from this vantage point God has created an amazing universe, an amazing world, and we must respond to Him. We must be transformed by Him. We must tell others about Him, no matter, no matter if it was unpopular, no matter if it, <laughs> if it brought them into court, no matter what the backlash was. They took, every, they took that opportunity a unique opportunity in the history of the world, in the history of television, in the history of the United States, for, for sure, to tell others that God was behind it. Nature reveals God. Are you pursuing life with the Creator? Have you responded to Him? Have you been transformed by Him? Are you telling others about Him? Carl Sagan Carl Sagan never did respond to God. He never did see who was behind it. He never did acknowledge the capital G greatness of mysteries. He never did. He didn't pursue life with the Creator. He never could come to terms with God's existence. Instead, his life was a constant pursuit of knowledge and worship of the creation rather than the creator. At one point, he was, he at, he was asked about his atheism, whether he was an atheist, and he kind of dismissed the question, well, I don't really know for sure. I don't know yes or no. There's not enough evidence. And he said this, to be certain of the existence of God and to be certain of the non-existence of God seem to me to be the confident extremes in a subject so riddled with doubt and uncertainty as to inspire very little confidence indeed. My friends, the, the world is full of people who have exchanged the truth of God for a lie. They worship creation rather than the creator. They haven't responded to him they have not been transformed by him. They need someone to tell them about him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, we want to worship you as you deserve to acknowledge and to declare with all of creation your glory, your weightiness, the heaviness, your, your ultimate and infinite value. 
We want to acknowledge your existence. We want to pursue life with you, God. I believe most everyone here has responded to you, um, has probably been transformed by you. God, but there are a lot of people outside of this room and outside of our uh, worship gatherings all over this valley and all over this United States and all over this world this morning who have not responded to you, who have not been transformed by you, who need someone to tell them about you. Lord, that's why we're here. That's why missions exist, because worship doesn't. Worship doesn't. God, may we pursue you with everything that we have. God, may we be bold to share the the good news. May we boldly proclaim your greatness. Lord, help us. Give us wisdom. Give us guidance. Give us opportunities every day, Lord, to declare what you have done, the works of your hand. Lord, we love you and we pray all of this in the name of Jesus. Amen. We're going to have our time of response as we always do and If there is something that you want to respond specifically about, I invite you to come up. As the music plays, we'll sing along or listen and pray, and then you come forward.
together and start working on how we can, can do something, something fresh and maybe a little bit out of the box considering when there's some of the 